Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, a medievalist who is just so pleased to invite another medievalist to the show today. Beth Allison Barr is here, and we're talking about history and how it shapes us, resisting the urge to impose our own norms and ideas back onto the past um, about medieval women and gender, and a lot more fun things. Beth Allison Barr is James Vardaman Professor of History at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where she specializes in medieval history, women's history, and church history. She recently served as president of the Conference on Faith and History and is an active supporter of Christians for Biblical Equality. Barr is a regular contributor to the Anxious Bench, the popular Patheos website on religious history, and has written for Christianity Today, The Washington Post, Religion News Service, The Dallas Morning News, Sojourners, and Baptist News Global. Her work has been featured by NPR and The New Yorker. She's also a Baptist pastor's wife and the mom of two great kids. Dr. Barr, thank you so much for coming on Old Books with Grace today. I'm so pleased to have a fellow medievalist here, though you were trained at Carolina and I was trained at Duke, so we've got some some rivalries going. But uh, putting that aside, I'm so excited. Um, I ask everyone who comes on the show two questions before we get into the meat of our discussion. The first which I'm sure will be really hard for you as somebody who reads old stuff all the time. What's your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? Oh, yeah. Well, um, I am a huge 19th century literature fan. And so one of my favorite authors is Elizabeth Gaskell. I love Elizabeth Gaskell. And so, in fact, right now I'm reading Mary Barton again. Um, And I, North and South, of course, well before people fell in love with it because of the miniseries, the book is just incredible. And so the insights that it gives into the manufacturing cities. um, So I just love, I love North and South. I love Wives and Daughters. I love Cranford. I love Mary Barton. And I I've just gotten started on some of Elizabeth Gaskell's um, short stories, which I hadn't read that much before. So they're really, so I'm, anyway, so she's a very prolific author. She got, um, sort of got launched by Charles Dickens. Um, And so it's kind of, but she still doesn't get nearly the attention that she really should. So she's, she's pretty phenomenal. Um, Of course, anybody who reads any of my stuff knows that I love Dorothy L. Sayers. Uh, sure. Just right about at that 50 year, you know, for some of her things. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, she is, uh, she still is, I think is one, she's one of my comfort um, authors that I read. I read her stuff um, over and over again. Um, the only one of her books that I don't read over and over again is Have His Carcass, a Carcase, which for some reason is that one is a muddy book. It's hard. It gets really boggy in parts of it. And so I don't know. So that one, I, I have to skip portions of it to make it all the way through it. That's the only one of her writing. So, I mean, I guess everybody has to have an off book. Yeah, um, I'm so glad that you, uh, those are both two authors that I am not as well versed in as I would like to be. I've read uh, a decent amount of Dorothy Sayers, but I've never read her fiction before, which I really Oh gosh, should I know? I know. I did not get into her through her. Um, you know, I have read um, "The Man Born to Be King," which is actually really phenomenal, and I, I, w- I wanted to know why people got so upset about it uh, because essentially what she did is she took medieval mystery plays. And she wrote a modern medieval mystery play that was released on radio about the life of Jesus. Yes, and it is 
it got a lot uh, pushback and upset people over it because, um, but it's it's really fascinating. So I encourage anybody to read or listen to it. Actually, that's the way you can get the dramatized um, oh, audio and listen to it. The way that it was actually performed is a lot of fun. Um, but uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, I mean, I read, my favorite book by her is actually The Nine Tailors, which is um, the sort of classic fiction um, detective novel, Peter Whimsey. Um, and it is... Uh, in it, she quotes John Merck, who is um, the, yeah. And so that was when I, Dorothy L. Sayers, like, I was like, okay, I, I like this author because, you know, anyway. She's, she's your girl. You can't yeah. help it. Yeah. If somebody quotes Merck, you're like, oh, you're the real deal. And by the way, um, John Merck wrote a, uh, a series of sermons that were very popular in the Middle Ages. For those of you who have not heard of uh, Merck's Festial and yeah. a, a bunch of other pastoral um, material for priests and for parish priests. Yes. His manual for, um, manual for priests and yeah. And so it's not exactly like the kind of thing that, uh, it's not like coming across Dante where you're like, Oh, the main medieval man, like you find him everywhere. Coming across someone who's quoting Burke is like, Oh, she also did a really, (laughs) Dorothy Osiris also did a really impressive translation of Dante. Um, and you know, actually one of my favorite, stories more than 50 years old definitely is um is Beowulf and my favorite translator of Beowulf is Tolkien so Tolkien did a really fantastic translation of Beowulf um and so I love that and um anyway if if you are an LOTR fan Hobbit fan of course um it was definitely the inspiration for the beginning of the Hobbit was his translation of Beowulf so that's something to check out um oh yeah and if you uh I remember as a, uh, so I watched the movies before I read the books as a um, really middle schooler. I know I hadn't oh, really, well, I had been kind of scared yeah. by the Hobbit when I was a kid. So I was a little nervous. Oh, that movie, that movie that came that out. Movie, that movie, that animated movie, that is a scary movie. Oh, I, I'm, I'm also a lightweight. Um, but uh, yeah. then I, so then I read, um, then I read the books, fell in love. But then in, in either high school or college, I can't remember which, I read Beowulf and was like, oh, this is the writers of Rohan. Like, it this is. is totally the writers of Rohan. Yeah, so, um, and, yes. You know, and then also, yeah, no, I do. And then, of course, um, in my medieval classes, you know, when we read the Nordic texts um, that you can see the bear, the the story. I mean, there's so much of Tolkien that is um, that is early and central medieval. And it is just really amazing. So I, I love Tolkien for that, not just because everybody knows who he is now. Um, it's more because he's a medievalist. Yes. And it it's comes steeped through. in his work. <laughs> in his work, and it is so fun. So like Dorothy L. Sayers, too. Uh, so clearly, I like authors that um, are, are writing on things and also using um, medieval history to inspire what they write. And so, so I absolutely love that. Um, okay. So my, my second question for you that I ask everybody is um, which literary character do you most identify with and why? Yeah. So I'll give you, I'll give you a couple. Um, I'll give you one more highbrow and one more lowbrow. Though actually they may both be sort of lowbrow. If you think about detective fiction, um, I like detective fiction. I like, I've always liked it. I've been reading Agatha Christie um, since I was very young. 
um, as well as Sherlock Holmes. And then that led me on to, to just more. So I just, I read a lot of detective fiction and then 19th century. I could go on and on about the 19th century text. I always like to sit on the dissertation committees of um, literary uh, students who are working on 19th century literature. Cause I'm like, oh my gosh, I've read all that stuff. You know, I can go and talk yes. eloquently about it because I've read it all. So um, anyway, so that, so I would say one of the characters that I've always identified with is with Dorothy L. Sayers and it's Harriet Vane. And I really like Harriet Vane because she is so um, uh, on the, you know, she, she is so conflicted in about what she sort of like her public persona and um, she's very much an introvert. I mean, I, I love reading Gaudy Night because uh, Harriet Vane talks about all she wants to do is just like go to how relaxing it is to be in the archives, to be in Duke Humphrey's library, which is where I've spent a lot of time working. And that, you know, that it's just so relaxing to her and the sounds of the, of the archives, the quiet world of um, the scholar, of being a scholar. And I just identify with that so much, especially now, because I mean, it is, it's, it's a safe place place. It's a quiet place. It's a place where you can be in your head. Mm. And I'm much more comfortable in my head um, than being out in the public space. So I very much identify that with Harriet Bain. Um, but another one who is, you know, this is one of my little, uh, you know, I guess literary, see, I, I read a lot. I've always read a lot. Um, and I'm not very polished in my reading. I read pretty much anything. Um, and when I was, uh, I guess I was a somewhat a younger teenager, I started reading a series of books by a woman named Elizabeth Peters. Well, that's her pen name. Um, her actual name is Barbara Michaels. Is it, wait, is that right? Yeah, I think that's her, um, some Barbara, I'm trying to remember what her actual name is now. She has three different pen names, um, but she was an Egyptologist. She got a PhD in, from the University of Chicago from their, from their Egyptology department, which is actually pretty prestigious. And then because of some things in her life, she wasn't ever able to go out and do field research um, because she was living in the middle part of the 20th century. And there wasn't a lot of help for women when they got married and had children to be able to go and do those things. So she ended up using her historical skills and put them to writing popular fiction. Mm. And so she wrote a series, her most famous series is on an Egyptologist family from the 19th century. And it's a lot of fun. Um, there actually is a lot of history in there, um, but there's also just a lot of fun stuff. And then she also wrote a shorter medieval, um, a shorter series based upon a medieval historian whose name was Vicki Bliss. And um, my sister, and that Vicki Bliss made a lot of impression on me. In fact, the languages that I took were because Vicki Bliss did German and Latin. And so I did German. Um, oh, I love that. That. So it made a lot of impression when I was younger. And so my sisters always joke that that was what I was wanting to be was aspiring. She was also blonde. Um, and, you know, and so, and she went off and became, um, became a, 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 she was an art, a medieval art scholar. Um, but anyway, so sort of fun. Oh, I love that. I'm definitely adding those to my to-read list because that yeah. sounds like exactly my cup of tea. Um, oh, what fun book recommendations and fun things to look into. So you've written this very popular and controversial in some circles book, The Making yeah. of Biblical Womanhood, um, which makes the case through scripture and historical documents that complementarianism 
uh, doesn't really differ from secular patriarchy right. and that uh, so-called Christian patriarchy basically flexes to whatever culture it's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't really, uh, it's not stemming out of a Jesus oriented faith and practice. Right. Um, I really enjoyed your book a lot, which Good. is, uh, um, it, it, it's sharp and it merits serious reading regardless of, of, uh, personal beliefs about women in the pulpit. And unfortunately you get a lot of pushback without engagement with your actually very, very careful, very serious <laughs> argument that is very yeah. historically grounded. Um, and I, I say that cause I have a, a very wide ranging audience of listeners, some of whom but likely belong to complementarian churches and some of whom don't, some of whom are Protestant and some of whom are Catholic. And so okay. um, I say that as a, as a, welcome to all those folks who are listening and who might be uh, a little bit like, oh, this is interesting and different. Um, And uh, as a welcome to engage with this on a serious, thoughtful level. And um, what I, something I really liked about uh, the making of biblical womanhood is that uh, you blast through particular historical narratives that we're all pretty familiar with. So like a silly, but common sort of enlightenment historical narrative is that, Socially, we're on an upward trajectory and we're smarter and better than the people of the past. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and you yeah. make the point that in, in a lot of ways, women had more rights and power in the Middle Ages than they did post-Reformation and through the Reformation. And I would love to hear you tell us a little more about yeah. that and um, about your, your so, uh, argument there. I, when, I teach, um, when I teach sort of broadly, especially historiography, when I teach about this, the craft of history, one of the things that I talk about when I talk about the Enlightenment period, period I call it the Star Trek principle, you know, <laughs> sort of this idea that the world just keeps getting better and better and better. And then that, of course, got exploded with postmodernism after, you know, the aftermath of World War II. But that's what I always call it, the Star Trek principle. And we do, we kind of have this idea of the Star Trek principle that we are so much better than we were in the past. And this plays into Christian understanding understandings of biblical womanhood. Um, In fact, some of the way that we argue about Christian women, we're like, oh my gosh, we understand so much better um, how, you know, how Christian, how women are made in the image of God. And this is so much better than, than in the Jewish past where women were really, and we have this narrative that is really false um, where we say how much better it, we as modern Christian women are today. And that Christianity, as we see it was liberating to women in these particular ways, this emphasis on women being made in the image of God, and even this elevation of motherhood. And we see these as liberating factors and we contrast them with what we see in the Jewish world. And this is one of those false narratives also. Um, Then, of course, we do the same thing with the Reformation era. And this is where, you know, I know, you know, as a medievalist, I sweated over this Reformation. (laughs) I bet you did. Um, It was one of of the first, I sent it to um, a fellow scholar and I said, tell me where I was stupid. I was like, just (laughs) tell me if I made any, I I said, you know what I'm, what I'm trying to do with this and how I'm trying to boil down these, the scholarship on women in the Reformation into an understandable way, but also show the impact that it had on evangelical Christianity. Because that's really, and if you look at the title of that chapter, it's the cost of the Reformation for evangelical women, mm-hmm. which is really what I was trying to emphasize here. And so um, the what I want people to understand is that patriarchy, because it is culturally bound, 
it stems from culture that it um, that it plays to culture, and so patriarchy is not the same. You know, Judith Bennett says this so well that um, you know that patriarchy is everywhere, but it's not everywhere the same. Yeah. And yes. so when we think about the Reformation era, the thing that we have to understand is that yes, patriarchy existed in the medieval world, but it existed in a different way than it does in the modern world, and those differences had really significant implications for evangelical women. And of course, the main one. Is is that I call it in the medieval world? I call it the um, the get out of jail loophole for women spiritually, and it's this idea that um, women's the problem. The reason women's can't be leaders in the church is because women's bodies are more flawed than men. That women, you know, this association with Eve, this association, you know, women are more sinful, um, and, and that they are fundamentally flawed. This also still you know stems from the Aristotelian understanding. And so because of this, women cannot have that leadership. This is why they're barred from the priesthood. Um, But at the same time, medieval theology had a loophole where women could escape their bodies and men could escape their bodies too. I mean, this whole idea of, you know, is the priesthood a third gender? Is it something because in order to be a priest, you have to um, reject what it means to be a man. And if women reject what it means to be a woman, it allows them to have similar spiritual authority to men, which is how we get all of these women religious um, you know, I, I know you're a big fan of Julian of Norwich. We just went and saw her church a couple of weeks ago. I was over there in Norwich. I'd never been to her rebuilt cell and church that was destroyed in World War II and bombing. Um, but anyway, we went there and it was really great. But if you think about, um, you know, the authority that these women and Julian of Norwich, of course, was an anchoress. And so her voice wasn't quite as powerful um, simply because she didn't have the audience. But in some ways, what she was doing, I mean, her theological teachings are very similar in some ways to other women. And if you think about like Hildegard of Bingen, um, who went on these significant preaching tours and wielded a great deal of authority. I mean, you know, she had, she had major ecclesiastical figures writing to her and asking her for her advice um, and, and accepting her teachings. And it's like, you know, that is not seen as something that women in like the Southern Baptist world that is not something a women's voices would not be accepted in that way. And so the question of course is why? And it's because medieval women could escape their bodies by rejecting being a wife and being a mother and um, sexuality and be able to exert the religious authority of men. Yes. This stuff is so fascinating because it's like, um, there are, I, I actually, I'm, I'm just, uh, so excited hearing you talk about this because I've been um, working on a on a book project and I've been looking at uh, Rabia Gregory's um, Marrying Jesus book. Have yeah. you? All, yeah, yeah, I'm sure you've read that one. Um, but how there are all those woodcuts of in in these devotional books for men and women, <laughs> where um, you have pictures of the soul coming closer to Jesus, right? And and Jesus is definitely very identifiably Jesus. He looks right. like Jesus. The soul in all of these different um, devotional illustrations are. Um, sort of there's there's like a, a male one and a female one in a lot of them, but they're becoming less and less male and female, like the closer right. they draw to Jesus. And that exactly. totally reflects what you're saying about um, the idea of, uh, of spiritual authority through mm-hmm. um, 
leaving behind sort of your earthly bodies and and their functions in a sense. Yeah. And this makes people today, you know, I tell people, it makes people today so uncomfortable because, um, you know, and history is a very freeing place, I think, because you can talk about things that happened in the past without having to tell people why, what conclusions they should draw from that. Yes. So one of the things that you can talk about in the medieval world is that the understanding of gender was more fluid. Yes. And, you know, and this, I mean, I know people are like, oh my gosh, you're, it, it, it doesn't matter what you think about that. The historical reality is that medieval Christianity viewed gender as more fluid. Yes. And this and, isn't a, mm-hmm. like, so then we tend to put that in like a new age box or like right. super liberal and I'm air quoting though. You can't exactly. see obviously, yeah. uh, but really these, these were images used by Dominican friars, by yes. very respectable medieval preachers, mm-hmm. by people who were uh, specializing in spiritual formation and meeting and talking about it and sharing ideas. So these were not like fringe, crazy out there concepts like these, this, and that's what I think people are always surprised by when they're talking about medieval ideas of gender. So, um, I'll give you a little spoiler in my third book of my trilogy, which we've just announced, you know, I was hoping we would talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) one of the chapters it's, I'm going to have to figure out how to do it, but it's going, um, you know, so I, I teach, I, when I teach my upper level women's history courses, I use a lot of texts from the golden legend, especially the 15th century middle English translation of the guilt legenda, um, which I actually just saw in the British library a couple of weeks ago. I got the really big volume of it and went there. It was so beautiful. They don't let you take pictures of it. So it's kind of disappointing, but nonetheless, it's still a lot of fun to get to go through it. Um, But one of the things that, you know, we find are what we uh, talk about are the saints. Mm -hmm. A lot of women who end up in um, these, in really live like men mm-hmm. within these monastic cells. And um, one of these women, which is in the, the Gilt Legenda, um, and her, she is dressed as a man from very, from a childhood. Her father gets her in, his wife died, he gets her in, and um, he essentially raises her as, as a man. And finally he tells her that she's not, but he says, don't tell anyone else. And so it it kind of goes through her story, but what's really interesting about the text is that the pronouns change Hmm. in the middle English. They change depending on whether people are perceiving her as a man or as a woman. And so you see this gender bent and nobody, this this had nothing to do with, I mean, as I said, there's no judgments here. There's no, it's just, this is the way it was. When she was perceived as a man, they use male pronouns. And when she's perceived as a woman, they use female pronouns. Hmm. And so it's really fascinating. And this would be something that people today would get all upset about and everybody would be freaking out. And I'm like, you know, yeah. This is a very orthodox text that is taught to all sorts of people and everybody uses these, these stories and this did not freak out medieval Christians. Yes. So, I mean, it's just thinking about that, I think. And that's what I kind of want to highlight for people um, is that, that Christianity has been broader um, and deeper in ways that we conceive of it. And it doesn't mean that we can't make our own decisions today, you know, sort of thinking, uh, I guess, if you want to put value judgments on it, but you can't erase the historical reality yes. of yes. what was going on. And that um, relates actually very much to, I had a lot of other questions for you, but we can- Sorry, did I get you off track? No, no, no. This is actually related to a question that I wanted to ask you. Okay, um, 
but uh, that uh, we'll have to return. I want to talk more about medieval women, um, but we'll return to that. Bookmark that. Um, But relatedly, we're talking about this uh, concepts of the past and how we read ourselves back onto the past and read our uh, values, comforts, discomforts um, as sort of eternal truths back onto the past. And um, so this is a question that's really important to me that I'm thinking about all the time and I think very important to the present moment, all the controversy we're living through right now, all of the uh, difficult, really important things we're thinking through culturally, Mm -hmm. socially. So you're the wife of a pastor. You've taught and mentored uh, countless college students and you have two kids. Um, What should be the role of history in shaping and forming us as Christians. So history can get simplified in relation to our present selves, as I just mentioned, or we can say, you know, kind of silly things like, oh, you know the past so that you don't repeat it, or you reify it into something that is nostalgic and never existed, right? So how do you think history and the study of history should shape us and form us? Well, you know, I think... um, you know, for those of you who have read 1984, <laughs> um, the the book, it has a really interesting state. You know, where it talks about those who control the past control the control the future, and those mm-hmm. who control the future, you know, control essentially the present. And so it talks about you know history as this powerful force, and I think we have so, especially in this modern era, um, we have so minimized the significance of history. I mean, in some places we've even conflated, we've wrapped history into like, you know, social studies, um, which um, puts it only in this very modern light. Um, I know the SAT was uh, getting rid, you know, at one point, did they actually do it? I can't remember, but they were going to get rid of all of their historical questions like before the 15th century. Um, (laughs) I remember, I mean, this was like this huge, they were going, yeah, I know. And it was like, you know, so it's our we're living in an an era that really has forgotten how significant history is in shaping people and not actually what happened, but what we think happened. Yes. What we think about the past shapes us. And that's why people can make like in this whole complementarian egalitarian debate, you know, people make these really broad statements. They're like, you know, women have always been, you know, this sort of, I mean, these, these things always raise red flags to me because I'm like, what do you mean by that? Women have always been, mm-hmm. um, but we use by not really understanding the past and losing that past, really, you know, ancient, medieval, early modern history, and only glorifying it in certain, you know, I think so much of our history today is was written in the 19th century. Yes, it was written mostly in Western history. Was mostly written by wealthy white men. Mm-hmm. And our history that we have today, we still very much is through the lens that they wrote it in. And um, that has implications for us. I mean, and th- that's one of the reasons why so many people are left out of our understanding of history. Um, so I think, you know, one of one of the reasons that I wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood was because semester after semester, I would teach all of these undergraduate students who grew up um, in evangelical churches, and they would come to me and they would be like, why didn't anybody ever tell us this stuff? You know, I mean, like, why did nobody ever tell us this stuff? And I just realized this huge gap 
that made a difference because when they knew the past, it helped them better understand what had happened. And it helped them, you know, have a more, be able to make more informed decisions. Um, so it's not that you, you know, I, I think the better way of saying it, it's not that the past repeats itself. It's that history rhymes. Mm. That um, it rhymes and, and understanding why it rhymes and seeing patterns in history um, that don't duplicate exactly, but you can still pull threads and you can see, um, and you can also see the cost of when we forget that history. You know, I mean, I just, I think about all of the, um, you know, explosions against CRT today. I have to think about that as you were talking. I was like, like, this is so related. I'm like, y'all, you know, we, we have glorified American history, Mm -hmm. uh, U.S. history in a way that has minimized the trauma that we did to non-white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, and that's the whole thing, you know, thinking about telling the story of, um, you know, even the language that we use to talk about like removing Native Americans from their land and the language that we use minimizes it. Yes. And, um, and when you're looking at like historical documents, like actual ones, not yeah. history textbooks, not retellings right. later, when you're looking at the, the primary materials is when you really start to feel the depths of that sink yes. in. Like when you're reading yes. the legislation around Native Americans or when you're reading the sermons preached by, um, by white uh, yes. slaveholders in the South, yeah. Yeah. that's when you start to go, ooh, um, I've been reading these nice sanitized versions in my, especially since uh, like, you know, a lot of the history you encounter, you're reading as a kid. And so it is complicated because you, you don't want to dump a ton of stuff on, on kids that is developmentally inappropriate. But at the same time, you start to read that and go, oh, wow, I've had a whole different story t- told to me. I mean, history is exactly right. Lives. That's the way. Yeah. So, I mean, I, part of what I'm trying to do is to um, bring some of that history that we have forgotten and help us understand why it matters. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I even, I think of my, think of my own daughter, um, you know, I have a son and a daughter and um, my, they went to the same school. And so they read a lot of the same, you know, history textbooks. And I still remember this, my daughter was like in second grade or something and she was doing a report on Roman history. And she was, I mean, she's an avid reader. She reads all the time. And, um, and so, and she was having a trouble getting through it. And finally I was like, Elena, I was like, you got to do this. You got to read this because you got to do this thing. And she says, mom, it's so boring. She said, there's only men. (laughs) There's no women. And I was like, you know, I was like, let me see her book. And so I went there and she was dead right. And she was so, I mean, she was just like, this doesn't matter to me. I don't care about this. Um, and it was amazing to me that 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 young of an age that she was already seen, she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And that mattered to her. And so, I mean, you think about the, and you, so you think about the implications that has on young men who read textbooks all this time and women are not there. Yes. What does that do to how they think about the importance of women? I mean, yes. it's no wonder they don't think that women are, you know, do as important jobs or can't handle things as well as men can because they never read about women doing those things. Yes. So it matters. How we tell the story matters. Yeah. And I, I think I, I love that point. I think it's so important for us to remember because we we do, you know, culturally 
you hear a lot about how much representation matters and all that. And that's so true. And often we say that as if it matters for the person being represented on this, on the screen, right. Or on the book or wherever the, the minority, the person who is a person of color or the woman or whoever it is, but it also very much matters for the people who have historically been in power um, Mm -hmm. because uh, what you're seeing is either reflecting your own worldview only back to you or it's allowing you to get a different, some different perspectives while also still being yourself and, and, and having the history you have, you know? So um, I think that's a really important reminder for us because sometimes uh, you forget that the, 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 the backlash of it is also true. Yes. Um, okay. So in honor of representation, then let's talk about medieval women. Um, you write about how you love to shatter stereotypes of medieval women, which I also love very much. Um, who are some of your favorite medieval women? And um, then relatedly, who are some of the medieval women who have been your teachers? And what are you oh, learning from yeah. them? So, you know, I always... Um, I always, you know, I got into history when I decided to go and do my PhD, I decided I wanted to do women. Um, and part of the reason is for exactly what I've just said is because I saw women weren't there. And I, that always kind of bothered me. I was like, you know, we know women are here. And in fact, the reason I became a medievalist as opposed to a classicist, uh, because I was a classics undergrad, um, was because I realized how few sources we have in the ancient world Hmm. that almost, you know, the Greco-Roman world and almost all of the sources that we have are controlled by men Mm -hmm. and they do not include women. And so, I mean, and it's, it makes it challenging to do um, ancient history for women uh, because the sources were so controlled by men and they just didn't include women. I mean, it's really, really challenging. And so I was like, okay, um, you know, I don't really want to become an archaeologist. Well, I sort of was interested in becoming an archaeologist, but I decided, you know, who was I, it? Who likes who history? Wasn't? Who wasn't at one point, like maybe I but, should be an archaeologist, <laughs> but I really like texts. I like texts mm-hmm. more. And so I became, so I decided to go to the medieval world because there is more texts mm-hmm. about women. The texts are not as controlled. I mean, they still mostly are, but it's different. Yeah. And there are more, we can get at women better. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to start there. Let's go to the medieval world and let's start there. Um, and so when I first started working on women, I actually, I always used to tell people that I don't care about important people. It's really been true for most of, you know, I'm a social historian. Um, Mm -hmm. So I got into it reading really nitty gritty on the ground records. Um, And so, you know, the names like, you know, my daughter and both my son and daughter are actually names from a 14th century poll tax um, return in Shrewsbury, Shropshire. Um, Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, they're obviously modern names, but they were names that appeared on that 14th century poll tax. Um, And so I was reading, you know, sources like that looking for, looking for women. Um, but then I also began, I realized, you know, you have to try to get a full picture. And so you not only have to look in these sources for women, but then you also have to see how women are being written about and what women are actually the voices that we do have and what they are saying, um, which of course led me to hagiography. Yes. I love saints lives. Um, I think they are so, so beautiful. They're so rich. They're so human. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we, 
When we put people on pedestals today, we often make them less human. We emphasize how they're really good um, or even how they're really bad. And I love medieval saints because they're so human. Um, you know, they, they mess up a lot. I mean, you can even think about some of the desert fathers like, you know, St. Anthony and all of the torments, you know, that he talked about. <laughs> he's tempted all the time. I mean, it's very humanizing for him. Um, and so you see this with women too. So one of my favorite women, um, she only made it into the book a little bit in one of the final chapters, but it's... Um, um, St. Cecilia. I oh, yeah. love St. Cecilia. Um, you know, Chaucer wrote about her and um, she was a very popular saint. I actually was just looking at a, um, um, at a liturgical book um, a couple of weeks ago in the Bodleian. And at the back of it, it has the scripture, the New Testament divided. It has the gospel in Middle English, but at the beginning of each of the sections, it has a little you know, little thing where it says, preach this on days that you talk about these saints. And so it kind of divides. So it's really kind of cool. So I was looking at the one, um, you know, about St. Cecilia, and she is one of the ones that's listed listed in there um, that we find. So she was a pretty popular saint. And she's also a saint who, if we think about it from modern terms, it's really problematic um, because she's mean. <laughs> You know? I mean, she is. Um, you tell know, tell she, a little bit of her story for, for folks <laughs> who may have only encountered like a latter day version of St. Cecilia or yeah. who have never heard of St. Cecilia. Yeah. So, you know, St. <laughs> so Cecilia, again, she's one of these, um, she's one of these, um, you know, Greco-Roman, I mean, I'm Roman, sorry. She's one of these Roman women. We have all of these, you know, a lot of their stories start in the, uh, at this time period when either Christians were still wanting to be martyred. So we have all of these martyred stories. We can think about St. Catherine, who is also one of these, you know, it's very famous for her martyrdom. Um, St. Cecilia, again, um, is one of these two. So she's one of these wealthy Roman people um, who gets martyred and, um, you know, it has this story. And But where she really became, I think, significant was in the medieval world when her story is not so much on how she became a saint, but what happens to her after she kind of has gone to heaven. And, and so, and this is where Chaucer picks up, you know, with St. Cecilia. And so we have this great where she kind of almost serves as this little bit of this gatekeeper um, in heaven. And so, you know, one of the most famous stories is where she has this, um, you know, there's a church that's dedicated to her um, in the late ancient world, you know, probably fourth, fifth century, there's a church that's dedicated to her. And there's this really wealthy Roman citizen. I mean, this is still, you know, in the time frame between early medieval end of Rome, if you can put it that way in air quotes, in the beginning of the early medieval world. And there's this really wealthy Roman man who lives next to her house. And he was jealous of how much land was around her house, around her church, and he wanted it. So essentially, he just took it. He like moved the boundary stones mm -hmm. and like began to take land from her church. And, and he never would repent of it. You know, nobody's paying attention to him. Nobody's watching. It's this little, this woman's church that he takes this land from. Um, so when he dies and goes to heaven, he faces St. Cecilia. She finds him. And the story is, is that, you know, that when that she, first of all, she gives him this really, really dirty look, <laughs> you know, which is just really, I mean, he's like terrified. And then she pinches him so <laughs> hard, you know, and it says that if he had been still alive, it would have killed him. Um, that it is so hard. And, and then, and then he carries this mark on him, um, where essentially he goes before the judgment seat and they're like, we can't do anything. St. Cecilia has marked you. <laughs> you know, you have done, it doesn't matter what good you did in your life. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. You know, what can I do? Can I repent? Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, and the long short of it, he gets sent back. 
he, he wakes up from this horrible dream and he's like, and he gives everything back to the church. She's like, I'm so sorry. He gives everything back to the church, but St. Cecilia's pinch stays with him uh-huh. and he endures pain from it for the rest of his life. And Saint, so, I mean, St. Cecilia comes off as this woman who refuses to re- forgive, even in this repentant, you know, this man who eventually repents from it. And so she's become this sort of problematic figure, but at the same time in the medieval world, she wasn't problematic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she so were telling not. that story with like a basically approval of like, look, this is Cecilia. Like, don't mess with her. That's exactly the right. real deal. <laughs> yeah. and, and the moral of the story is don't take things from the church. Don't yeah. take things from saints. That this has serious implications. This will have implications for your soul. Don't do it. Um, and so, I mean, that's the moral of the story for these medieval Christians. And so they wouldn't have walked away from it being like, oh my gosh, you know, scorned women, whatever. We're going to stay away from them. They would have walked away from it with being like this is serious business Mm -hmm. she's powerful she's real she's you know she is someone to be a force to be reckoned with a holy force god is on her side she's a holy force yeah and so i mean that was one of the things that you know trying to blow up these stereotypes is that if you think about how women are portrayed today is supposed to be meek and mild and not i mean i'm like that's not at all the way they were portrayed by these medieval saint stories. Um, in fact, some of these saint stories were seen as so dangerous that by the 15th century, you know, we see more and more discomfort in the medieval world with some of these stories about mm-hmm. women as we move closer, as we move in the later medieval period. And in the 15th century, there's a sermon collection called Jacob's Well, um, where the preacher- I've, I've actually, done a lot with Jacob's yeah, Well. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, he writes in one of these, he says, he says, women, women these days shouldn't be like that. <laughs> That's what's fascinating because so, even then there's that temptation to do what we were just talking about, where you see your past and you're so uncomfortable with it that you try to adapt it and say, well, things were different back then. Yes. And they yeah. were, you know, so we, you can't be like that. You have to do this now. So it's, it's so funny because you even see that in these sources wrestling with their past sources. Yeah, <laughs> I Jacob's know. well is and it is a bonkers text. Um, <laughs> I just have to look at the, I've never looked at the, um, the actual manuscript before. So I spent a day up in Salisbury Cathedral um, on April 6th, I guess. I, I did a lecture series there, which was really fun. Oh, that's so um, cool. And I guess just three weeks ago. And she, um, anyway, and so, and then I worked up in the cathedral archives on the last day that I was there, which was a lot of fun and looked at Jake, Jacob's well. So I had, I got the entire, so that was, I really enjoyed that because I'd never seen the original manuscript. I'd only worked for microfilms before. So, um, so cool. Yeah, I just did I a, a virtues and vices series on this podcast for Lent. And I was looking at some of the English pastoral materials and talking about like what medieval people were writing about them and and we kind of think about it and different slipping definitions of words and stuff like that and I actually Jacob's well was super interesting because a lot of the time you're just like wow this is so intense this is such an intense text you're so really fascinating oh but then sometimes he said the the anonymous writer says things that you're like that's worth taking seriously. I don't know. That's really interesting. Um, so it's just such a fascinating book. Um, yeah. Especially since a lot of the pastoral materials can kind of blend together. And that's one that 
doesn't blend well, very often. <laughs> you know, it's it, we only have one manuscript of it, mm-hmm. um, which is really fascinating. Although we suspect that it probably was distributed more widely, but I mean, we don't know that for sure because we only have this one manuscript. But it's really fascinating the way that it pieced it together and the stories. I mean, some of my favorite. You know, speaking of hagiography, you know, one of the stories that I use in there, um, I think, yeah, I think it's in Jacob's Well. I'm trying to remember. It's the witch in her cow sucking bag. Do you know that story? You know, where the witch, where there's this witch that's going, that's stealing all the milk from the oh, village. I, I think, yes, yes. And it's this really amazing story. And um, yeah, it's told early on. It's in, because it's not, it's in, um, it's about um, not believe. It's, let me see, is it the first commandment? It may be in the first, but anyway, it's early on. And it, um, she goes, you know, the people of the village get all upset and they go to the bishop and they're like, this woman's stealing all of our milk. And the bishop's like, well, that's really cool. Tell me how you do it. And he makes her show him. I mean, it's really fascinating because he's like, show me how you do that. And so she like does her magic trick and it does all of this. And then he tries to do it and it doesn't work. And the moral of the story is, is that um, his belief is in the right God. Um, but it's interesting because it's not denying the power. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, it's not saying like, oh, and, and she wasn't, you know, and she was, it's like, oh, she, she had this own separate thing going on that was yeah. really scary. And, yeah. And then nothing happens to her. He yeah. says, don't steal their milk anymore. Stop doing you need that. To believe in the right God, but nothing else really happens. So it's really fascinating collection of stories. Um, but I mean, it just shows how much the medieval world, you know, the people were human, just like us, a lot of similarities in how we respond, but at the same time, it was a, it was a foreign country. It was a, the past is a foreign country. And, um, and so when you think about Christianity, I think that's really, really important for us to know. So, um, for folks who are interested in uh, wrestling and encountering primary sources with some of the questions you're raising, some of the issues you're tracing, some of the things we've been talking about. What books and authors do you recommend for them to seek it out and discover um, in their their own places? Yeah. So I will say that I think one of the reasons why we have forgotten so much of this church history is because so much of these texts are inaccessible. Yes. Um, You know, I mean, medieval books cost a lot. They do. And, you know, the presses that, you know, my first book that I published cost $90. um, That's pretty common with, you know, academic presses. And I, and so, and this has created a big distribution gap between the church and, um, and, and, you know, and academics and scholarship and even making primary sources accessible still. I mean, I think about the teams teaching series. Mm-hmm. It's really good. It's done through, um, you know, um, Western Michigan comes out. It was an initiative that came out of Kalamazoo, the big medieval conference. Um, and it's a great series because they're affordable texts. A lot of them are online. They're mostly in middle English, you know, yes. or they're in the original languages. And while there's great, you know, discussions that, you know, talks about what it is up front, and then we have the text, and then some of them do have the translations, but they're still done in a way that it, it's, you know, I kind of go back and forth on this. On the one hand, um, texts, we need to realize that they aren't in our world. So if we completely turn the modernize them, where there's no difference between our world and the, we lose the fact that this was a different world. Absolutely. Um, but at the same time, we also 
don't get people to read them. <laughs> you know, there is, I mean, think about the King James Bible. Um, people don't like it because the language, they find the language difficult. Yeah, and yeah. so, I mean, there's this real problem, like how do we make these texts accessible? Um, so there's a really, there's a good series on Western Christian spirituality that does primary source texts. Um, you know, all of the medieval um, really the women, almost any of the, you know, the female mystics, um, although sometimes I don't like, I'm, a, I'm becoming less comfortable with just defining women in the medieval church as mystics, because I think yeah. in some ways that puts them in a separate category. And it's says, a very baggagey word. I use it because people understand yeah. what you mean when you say it, but I also do not prefer it um, for various for for a whole bunch. Yeah, of it, but it, yes, it, it's a way to separate women from um, being as authoritative as the men in these spaces. And so I, I find it a little problematic, but nonetheless. Um, and it makes them seem fringe, uh, which in many yes. cases they are decidedly not. Even look at Jane um, of Norwich. I mean, she's this anchoress out in the sort of this middle. I mean, nobody knows her, but her theology, I mean, but anyway, I mean, it, she's not French. No. And her theology is so profound. Yes. Um, and it's very orthodox. I mean, she was completely informed by the Orthodox Church that yes. she would have taught. I mean, none of her stuff is French. No, and she herself insists on that all several times, and it's not uh, it's not performative at all. Right. She really means it. No, yeah. So, um, so anyway, so if you want to read the, this Western this Western spirituality series, has accessible, affordable texts, and you can read almost any of these women from them. Um, Penguin. Oh, go on. Oh, I was going to say that series is great um, for folks who, uh, like me, like I don't read <laughs> uh, medieval German. Uh, so it's yes. really great, especially like if you are, um, I always tell everybody to give Middle English a try because if you are interested in language and if you're willing to do just a little bit more work for it, you can read most Middle English dialects. You really can. Um, yeah. With I mean, practice, with practice. But like the, but obviously some things like, some of the really great uh, contemplative mystical writers are writing in German or writing in Spanish or these other languages. And that's what yeah. that series is really helpful for. So you can read Catherine of Siena, you can read Bridget of Sweden, you can read Mechtild of Magdeburg, all kinds of different voices that are really interesting and challenging. Yeah, no, I know that's why. And in fact, I have, I have almost all of them on my, I, I took a, in fact, I meant to say this early on, I do have a PhD from Chapel Hill, but I took about, yep, I took about um, almost over 40% of my coursework at Duke. You did! So, I was over in Duke all the time. Hey! Um, in, fact, in fact, Chapel Hill, if you printed things from the library in Chapel Hill, they charged you. But if you went to Duke and you printed it, it was hey. <laughs> Uh, don't I know the free printing well, and don't I miss it I dearly? Was, oh, I was there. I was there where all my seminar papers got printed in Duke. Um, I love that. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time at Duke. Uh, but anyway, in fact, I took I took a, a course on um, on female. It was called female mysticism, but I took it at Duke, um, and so got all of these Western spirituality uh, texts. Um, Penguin also does a really good job. It has some teaching texts that are actually really great. You can get Marjorie Kemp there. It has, you know, um, Barry Windet's uh, classic translation of Marjorie mm -hmm. Kemp. You can get, it has a good solid introduction. You can get Christine de Pizan, um, you know, good. And they're, they're all 
very affordable texts um, that you can find. I mean, they are somewhat limited in the sense that they usually translate the most accessible of these stories and Mm -hmm. the women who they think people will actually buy and read. So it's not everything, but it's a good start. Yes. Um, You know, and then of course, one of the books that I use all the time in my women's history courses is there's a, uh, a pretty affordable um, translation of the Golden Legend, the Gilt Legenda, um, by Larissa Tracy, mm-hmm. and it has a really good explanatory introduction, as well as this great essay talking about the significance of these types of women, and and very accessible. Um, also, the uh, what's her? I just blanked. Out, Karen Winstead. Mm-hmm. Karen Winstead has a good collection. Chased, um, what is it? Chased passions. Yeah, chased passions. I think what it is, and it talks about these virgin martyr stories. I think Saint Cecilia's in there because she, you know, as I said, is one of these. I think third century um, Roman martyrs who mostly is pretty much fits everything else except for what they did with her, how her story changed. You yeah. know, which is so fascinating. So there's a lot of accessible, um, especially of these primary sources that people can get their hands on. Wonderful. And now, um, I, we're coming up on our time, but I will, I I want you to, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your next two book projects. You gave us a little bit of a sneak peek already, but, um, would love to hear more. And then, um, I'll end with asking, uh, if uh, people want to learn more about you, yeah. are there social media platforms they can follow you on, um, hear from you? Obviously, they can read your book, all that kind of good yeah. stuff. But if you want to share some of that information, that would be great. Yeah. So um, when I first first wrote The Making of Biblical Womanhood, I really intended just to drop it out and run away back to the halls of academia. Um, <laughs> and, and that really was what I planned to do, except for things in my career worked out that allowed me to actually go back to a primary research position, um, which I'm really looking forward to. And that opened the door for me to be able to write more. And I also realized after the initial, you know, few months of the making of biblical womanhood came after I, you know, it was so overwhelming in the beginning. And when it finally had time to settle, I suddenly realized that, um, Somehow I had figured out how to write this stuff in a way that people were reading. Mm -hmm. And I was like, maybe I need to do more. (laughs) Maybe I need, there's more I can help with. Um, And so I thought about it for several, several months. And um, the first book that I really wanted to do is actually going to be my third in the series. And it is this, the cost. I want to talk about the cost of us forgetting medieval history and the real implications that that has for our modern world. And so that book, and um, there's a blog post that I wrote several years ago. It was actually when I was mad about finding out about the changes in the standardized exam that was going to eliminate medieval history. And so I wrote a blog post called Losing Our Medieval Religion. Mm. And, um, and that was, and I was like, you know what, that's actually a whole book. There's so much that I could do with that. And it's going to be so much fun because it's going to connect. It's going to bring in all this medieval history that people just don't know. And then also tie it to modern things, you know, problems that we have in the church that I think are directly connected to us forgetting our past. So I'm really excited. That's going to be the final book in what I've called my trilogy. Um, And then the second book is also one that I, I had thought about for a long time doing a book on the pastor's wife. Hmm. 
But at the same time, I also was like, I'm not just going to, you know, if I write something that's only in the past three, 400 years, that's just way too modern. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, what's the point? That's not a story. Um, that's, you know, <laughs> that's contemporary history. Um, so, but it, as I thought more and was in the texts, one of the things that I began to see, because I really am a big picture person. I like to connect patterns across time. And I realized that there is a connection between the disappearance of female ordination and the rise of the office of the pastor's wife. Hmm. And I was like, that's a story I can tell. And it allows me to, ex- to expand on some things in the making of biblical womanhood, like female ordination, which I really didn't talk about all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it'll allow me to really go into talking about the history of female ordination, which will also bring in much more of the Catholic understanding of what's going on. Um, and then, but it'll also then allow me to connect it um, to this modern and really strange office of the pastor's wife, where you have women who are in these quasi-authority positions that have no power, that have no authority, but have major expectations, and it is billed as a called position, yet the way you get it is by being married, which Mm -hmm. is strange. Very interesting. It's really strange. If you think about positions in the church, offices in church history, the pastor's wife is, is... so anomalous. Yeah, that's real and super recent. I mean, yes. When in the history of the church has ever there been an office obtained by marriage? I mean, exactly that's just right. a, totally not historical Christianity in No. It. No, and it and it uh, obvious, you know, and we just it's so much a part of our world, we don't even question it. But if you have this bigger picture of history, you're like, "What?" <laughs> You know, how does somebody get, you know, they, they fought really hard against nepotism about people just inheriting offices. How do women inherit an office simply because of who they're married to? Yeah. I mean, this is a really strange thing or expect it. And a lot of women, of course, don't want it. <laughs> you know, they have, they, anyway, so I'm excited about tackling that. So my second book is called Becoming the Pastor's Wife, but it's going to um, delve back into the history of female ordination. Wow, that sounds super interesting. I'm very much looking forward to those. Um, yeah, super yeah, exciting. Fun. Um, social media platforms oh, sure. can find you on. Yeah, yeah. So um, I am mostly active on Twitter and Instagram. So you can find me. I'm always Beth Allison Barr. Um, I'm also on Facebook. Um, you know, sort of, I may have more time for Facebook in the future. Part of it is there's only so much time that you have to do things. Um, but I also write and I try to direct people. People always used to know me by this, but now fewer people know this, but um, I write regularly on the Anxious Bench on Patheos. It's a religious history blog. It's a lot of fun. Um, I write, right now I've gone down to once a month, but I'm going to go back up to at least twice a month um, writing. So you can always find me on the Anxious Bench. And um, and so, and you also will get people who've been reading me for a long time know that the Making of Biblical Womanhood was born on the Anxious Bench. And so you can read some of my early blog posts that eventually got pulled into the book. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat with me today about history and medieval women and busting stereotypes. I love it. Yeah, it's fun. Thanks for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm available on Twitter at Grace Hammond PhD and on Instagram at Old Books with Grace and would love to chat there. If you're interested in hearing more of the podcast, what I've been up to, what I've been reading and writing lately, I have a monthly newsletter that is free with Substack. 
gracehammon.substack.com. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it also if you left a review or rating on the platform of your choice. And in two weeks, I'll be chatting about J.R.R. Tolkien with the creator of the wonderful online Tolkien community, Tea with Tolkien, Caitlin Fasista, on the great man himself. I'm really excited. It's going to be a fun, nerdy conversation that I'm looking forward to. Thanks again. 